0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill.
1: If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
0: After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, But Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him.
1: Father, we confess as one body that nothing compares to the glory and majesty of Jesus, our King, our Redeemer, our Saviour. and We do ask, Lord, that uh, as you move now by the power of your Spirit and as we open up your Word, uh, you would enlarge our hearts that we would be a people who would shout and worship and glorify you. Lord, we long to live for you. We long to encounter you here and now. Be at work, we pray, for our good, the good of this city, and indeed the glory of your wonderful Saviour, in whose name that we pray, and all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen. amen, amen. Hey, can we thank the Lord for Harry coming from Geelong, leading us today with that throwback. You may take a seat. Uh, So good to be with you, City on a Hill. Uh, Whether you've been part of our church for many years uh, or today, you are visiting for the very first time. So glad uh, that you're here. Love what God is doing. Love that God is bringing people together. In fact, I was uh, walked into a lift uh, last Sunday afternoon. It's like four p.m. I walk on this into this lift, and I see a woman there, and she's got a, a t-shirt uh, with three words, uh, bright uh, words on her t-shirt: "God is good." How many of you know that God is good, right? She had this t shirt, God is good. And I'm like, man, I love your t shirt. She says, thanks. I said, have you been to church today? She says, no, not yet. She's from Tassie, she's from out of town. She says, but I'm planning to go to church tonight. I hear that there's a church that meets in a movie theater. (laughs) I'm like, really? That sounds like a great church. See you later. And off I went, and uh, it was wonderful to see her later that night uh, with her friends and her surprise. She came to this church in a movie theater. I love what God is doing. I love uh, that He's bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. And speaking of that good news, this morning we continue in this seven part series in the lead up to Christmas, looking at the seven signs of Jesus, the seven miracles that are seeking to point us. To the uniqueness, the beauty, the power, the glory of Jesus, for those of you who were with us last week, uh, we looked at uh, that stunning miracle in John chapter four of uh, was it five, four five, somewhere there in the early pa- passages of John, where Jesus heals uh, a royal official 's son with a word. All right? How many of you were here last week to see that? How many of you were encouraged by what you saw in Jesus? The power of his word. Today, the journey continues as we look at the third sign in the miracles of Jesus. If you've got a Bible handy, why don't you come with me to our reading in John chapter 5. And John sets the scene like this. He says, after this... That is that miracle that took place in Cana in Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So here John is drawing our attention to a few important details to lay the foundation for what is to come. And the first thing to note is the distance that Jesus would have traveled to go from Cana in Galilee to Jerusalem. Does anyone know how long that journey is? Does anyone want to shout out a guess? Come on. 30 Ks. Higher. Higher. 50, 60, no, 107 kilometers, right? That's like, I mean, this is on foot, right? Jesus isn't rocking a Tesla. He's on foot with his disciples. That's like walking, uh, Harry, from here, Melbourne Central, all the way to Geelong and then to Torquay. That's a big Journey. But of course, for Jesus and his disciples, you need to appreciate that Jerusalem isn't just a destination, it's the heartland for God's people, Israel. We see this all the way through the Old Testament and the promise to Abraham and Moses and then Joshua and then King David. In the first century, Rome had Jerusalem under their iron fists. The people of God were being oppressed and and held by Roman occupation who came in, I think it was 63 BC. And so what you see in the Old Testament, the back end of the Old Testament and towards the first century, uh, is not just Israel's cry to God for redemption, but God's promise to His people that He would send a Messiah, a Saviour. One who wouldn't just uh, liberate God's people, but usher in a new day, a new era of salvation and worship. And so here is Jesus arriving on the steps of Jerusalem. Uh, It's a city steeped in tension and and conflict, but also bursting with hope and promise. Look then to verse 2. John says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. The pool is Bethesda, which interestingly means house of mercy. Bethesda, the house of mercy. Mercy, and there was a belief that this pool Bethesda in Jerusalem had healing properties. In fact, if you kind of look closely in your Bibles, you'll see that there's a little footnote at the end of verse 3, and if you double-click on that footnote, it's going to tell you that some manuscripts included a bit more detail at this point, explaining that there was a belief that ever so often an angel of the Lord would visit these waters, stir those waters, and whoever got into those waters first was healed. That was the kind of the rumor, that the belief that was swirling around. When I read that, it, it reminds me of the movie uh, Cocoon. Does anyone remember the movie Cocoon? Two people. Anyone else remember the 80s? Like, this is a throwback Sunday. Uh, it's a story of uh, a group of old men and women from a retirement village in uh, Florida, I think it is and they stumble across this pool that has these alien cocoons in the bottom of it, and they walk on into the water, and they discover that it has these healing properties. They're they're, they're reinvigorated. There's energy. It is for them. These waters are a fountain of youth. Now, of course, there's a reason why movies like that end up in the science fiction section of Blockbuster. Remember that? (laughs) I'm just going to keep throwing back until we're there. But what about the waters of Bethesda? Are we supposed, come on, are we supposed to believe that these waters can heal? Is that what John is wanting us to see? Well, the story continues, verse 3. Let's, let's track together. John says, in, that's the five, verse 3, if we go back one, in the five colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Right, So we've gone from the city of Jerusalem, Roman Empire, we've zeroed in on this pool, now we're looking and we see many, many men, women and children. And, and some of them can hear but can't see, or they can see and they can't hear. Some can sit but they can't stand. Now we need to ask ourselves at this point, what, what life in the first century would have been like for the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed? Uh, what would life have been like in an era where healthcare and support and structure was not yet in place? In fact, it's more than that, because we know in the first century, much like m- many parts of our history, Uh, The blind, the lame, the paralyzed were looked down upon, ostracized. Uh, This is a time when they would have been treated with suspicion, animosity, uh, in some cases downright uh, abuse. And that wasn't even evident, well, only evident uh, socially and culturally, but also spiritually. Um, the Greeks used to teach that a blemish on the body represented a blemish on the soul. Uh, Even the Jews would not allow those mentioned in this story to enter into the heart of the temple. Why? Because they were deemed spiritually unclean. And for the Roman Empire, let's be honest, they despised the weak. Um, it's, it's a known historical fact that if a family had a child that was diseased or disabled, it, 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 was a, it wasn't just tolerated, but in fact expected that the household could turf their little one into the sewer canals of Rome. And so when we look at this scene, the multitude that John is helping us see, the multitude of people, blind, lame, paralyzed, sitting by this pool, we are to feel the the tension of pain in their story, we're to feel the struggle, we're to feel the struggle in their life, we're to see the sense of desperation. As the multitude of men, women, children sit by this pool, reach out for these waters, wait for those waters to be stirred, desperately trying to be the first one, desperately trying to get into those waters and out of their bodies of death. And it's amidst this scene that then John goes even further and takes us to one man. And who is this one man? Verse Five. one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We're not told the name of this man. We're not told of the family he came from. We don't know his religious views. All we know is he's been there. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Uh, does that mean he's been that way all his life? Or is it the case that something happened during his life, and he's now been in this way for 38 years? John doesn't specify the details. All we know is that he's unable to get to the pool by himself. Um, This week, I reached out to uh, my friend, um, Meredith, and uh, there was a time uh, when she was healthy and mobile, but one day she went into hospital for minor surgery, and there was a complication with the anesthetic, and uh, she discovered she was having trouble walking, having trouble moving. She was told it would be okay, but it was not okay. The pain intensified, and Meredith was hospitalized for, eight, uh, for 14 months, and that was in 1991, and in the years and the decades that followed, Meredith was limited to a wheelchair. In a text to me this week, she says, I can understand the emotions of this man in John 5. Not feeling cared for. Being in assistance of someone to befriend or walk with him must have been horrible. There were times when my inner self wanted someone human to listen to my pain. After my event in 1991, I found my expectations had to be adjusted. I very quickly found that most did not want to hear. Others had a degree of care, but little follow through. I quite frankly decided this was about me and God. Look then to verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This is interesting. In the story of the official's son, it is the official who seeks out Jesus. It's the official who traveled his way to find Jesus and to get Jesus' help. And yet in this story, we see Jesus seeking out a man in need. Jesus is the one who travels to Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who saw him by the water. Jesus is the one who says, Do you want to be healed? And I know in in my own life, and as a pastor, I've met people who've sought Jesus out. There's been a crisis, there's been a situation, and they've come looking to Jesus, they've come seeking Jesus. But then there are other times where you're not exactly looking for Jesus, but Jesus comes looking for you. He comes into your world, he comes into your crisis, he turns up on your door, he comes seeking you. Who would, when you think about your own story, who would relate to that, right? Jesus coming in. The man in this story wasn't seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking him. And then what do you make of his question? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Now call me stupid, but isn't this obvious? I mean, the guy has been paralyzed for 38 years and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Of course he wants to be healed. But maybe this is less a statement of the obvious and more a question to awaken the possibility of redemption. Maybe this is to invite the man to consider what is about to take place. Let's note the man's response. Verse 7, the sick man answered Jesus, sir. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. What is the man saying here? The man is clearly saying, hey, I want to be healed. I really do. But there is no one in my life who can help me get into the pool in time. There's no one who's going to take me where I need to get to. There's no one who's going to carry me into these waters. And I find this to be both a sad but curious statement. And it's actually one that I think you and I can relate to if we, if we kind of follow this through. Um, you, we, we, we may not be struggling with a chronic illness or disease, but I'm sure you have something that you're looking to right now that you believe will make you whole. Uh, like the man in the story who, who looked at the waters of Bethesda, we all have waters in our life that we believe give us the life and healing and the salvation that we desperately need, something that we 're reaching after, that we believe I okay, could just get there, it 'll take away my problems and make everything right. The answer to this man 's healing. For him, it was about the waters, the, the mystery of these waters. But for you and I, it, look, it could be anything or anyone. Uh, we might look at our career and the prospects of success and say, if I could just climb my way up there or get into that room or get that title, then my problems would disappear. Then I would be significant. Then I would be made whole. Uh, We might view our relationships in the same way. Perhaps you feel right now that where you are, you're overlooked, you're isolated, you're underappreciated, and so we tell ourselves, man, if I could just get over there, if I could just meet the right girl, meet the right guy, if I could just connect there, strengthen that, then I would truly start to live. We do this with relationships, careers, our parenting. Some of us even do this with our own morality, we get frustrated with where we are, disappointed with our lack of progress. And we say, if I could just work harder, if I could just clean up my act, if I could just get there, then my life would matter. This man, by the waters of Bethesda, wants Jesus' help. He wants Jesus to be the guy who's going to carry him from where he is to where he thinks He needs to get to. And interestingly, this is how many of us approach our faith. Jesus turns up in our life, and maybe we're stunned by his power and all of this great stuff. And our first thought is how Jesus might be able to take us from where we are to where we think we need to be. We want Jesus to carry us to the waters of success. We want Jesus to carry us into that relationship. We want Jesus to carry us into financial freedom or whatever it is that we think is going to make our life matter. Now, is it wrong to seek after such things? No. It is good to seek healing. It is good to seek freedom. It is good to pursue life. But... What if Jesus didn't come to carry you into those waters, but to do something more significant? What if Jesus' gift, greatest gift, is found not in where he takes you, but what he offers in and of himself? When it comes to the man in Bethesda, Jesus is going to do something far greater than he could ever think or imagine. Have a look with me to verse 8. Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man is healed, he takes up his bed, and he walks. Isn't that an amazing scene? 38 years of struggle and pain, 38 years of isolation and rejection, 38 years of being a prisoner in your own body, Jesus says, get up, and at once the man is healed. Now, I know a lot of Christians can take this for granted, but just notice the the compassion of this moment. What Jesus is doing at this moment is actually incredibly countercultural. Rome despised people like this. Many religious religions taught people to ignore people like this, to keep out of your way from people like this, to let them suffer. And yet here is Jesus bringing renewal. Here is Jesus bringing healing. Here is Jesus modeling for us all the mercy and compassion that sits at the heart of our faith. I love that today we've been talking about our partnership with compassion. I've had the opportunity myself to travel to the Philippines and enter into homes and meet with people. Who are sponsored by people in this church? My wife and I sponsor kids ourselves. I've got to meet personally, pray with, encourage some of the kids that our family sponsor. I love that. You know, City on a Hill is a church that takes our Bible teaching very seriously. We want to be a church that's committed to God's Word, committed to Christ-like conviction. Of course, Christ-like conviction must always go hand in hand with Christ-like compassion. We're not a people who move away from suffering. We're not a people who move away from what is uncomfortable. We are to follow Jesus. To live like Jesus, to seek and pray and pursue that compassion. What else do we see in this miracle? This miracle is, of course, yet another window into Jesus' unmatched power and glory. This is a window into Jesus' unmatched power and glory. Do you know the immediacy in John's description? I mean, if you look closely at his words, Jesus says, get up, grab your mat... And John says, and at once the man is healed. At once he stands. Do you know how long long it takes for me to get my kids out of bed in the morning? Right? Get up, the bus is coming. Nothing. Jesus comes to a man who's been on his mat for 38 years and John says, and at once he gets up, picks up his mat. Unmatched power, unmatched glory. And as I was thinking through this, I'm like, why does Jesus ask about this mat? Why does he say, pick up the mat? Is he just foreshadowing what's gonna happen with the Sabbath principles? that we could get to that in a bit? Is it just about that or is something else going on here? Why does he say, pick up your mat? And then I was thinking about, it. I thought, maybe, and it's just, I'm just speculating here. I, I suspect that like this, this pool is like prime real estate. And he's been there for 38 years trying to get the very best place to get into the waters. And I suspect he, he's been there for 38. He had a great position on his mat. Right? It's like, the, the, I don't know, the, the best spot at the beach or the best car park at the, the shopping mall. This man had the best spot secured by those waters. And yet, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you know what? You don't need that spot anymore. You don't need to wait on those waters anymore. You don't need this map because I'm getting you out of here. I've come to heal you. I've come to make all things new. I mentioned my friend Meredith. 25 years bound to a wheelchair. Crying to God, trusting in God, praying to God. Like 25 years, that's a long time to wait. That's a long time to keep trusting in God. I never forget the day. One of my favorite moments in the story of City on a Hill. It was being at home and getting a text message from Meredith. Pastor Guy, I'm unsure if you're aware, but yesterday I was totally healed. I'm now not wheelchair-bound, no calipers for my legs and no pain. I bought my first pair of shoes and high heels today, And God, once again, proved faithful. I always expected my healing to be between God and me. It is him, not me, that is the focus. Still, to me, the greatest miracle is salvation. I wanted to let you know, pray for you, may God continue to bless you, your family city on a hill, Meredith. Exclamation point. The very next day, I meet up with Meredith, just downstairs, uh, near where Pause and Sip is today. And I have to tell you, I mean, I'm a pastor. I was struggling to believe. I mean, all I've got is this text message. All I've ever seen is Meredith in a wheelchair. I want to believe, but in my heart of hearts, I'm like, ah. And then, out of the corner of my eye, who do I see running toward me, Meredith. She comes running towards me, gives me this almighty hug. She does this like jig and dance, and she's just praising God uh, and, and, and saying, look, guy, I can walk, I can walk, I can walk. i never forget the words. She says, guy, it's not about me, it's about God. Oh my gosh, look at my shoes. How many of you know Jesus is amazing? How many of you know that we have a reason to shout to the Lord? How many of you know that God is good? Now, does Jesus heal everyone in the way that we want, in the timing that we want? No. No. But we do know a day is coming. I mean, these are all foreshadowing. These are all windows into. These are all foretastes of what is coming. So I've seen people in my life who haven't been healed, but in Jesus I'm saying, you will be healed. A day is coming. And between now and the not yet, oh, let's be a praying church. Let's not. Let's not give up believing in the power and mercy of our God. Let's continue to be a bold church, praying for the sick, praying for the struggles we are in, praying in those moments where uh, things just seem impossible is that quote from Ravenhill that uh, Richard sent me this week where he talks about praying with boldness and and laughing in the face of impossibility. That's the Christian's posture, laughing in the face of impossibility because we worship the God who does immeasurably more than we could ever think or imagine. Amen? Haven't finished yet, but I'll keep going. Verse 9, Jesus says, this is where things take a bit of a turn. Now, that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews, which is in Greek, he's saying the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Um, Now, Christians, if you're a Christian, we, we of course, believe in the importance of keeping a Sabbath. Sabbath. You know, the Lord created the world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. And so there's this pattern and principle that believers follow today. That you want to set aside a day to rest and celebrate the Lord. But as Jesus himself said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was never meant to be a burden, it was meant to be a blessing. And that is what makes this moment in the scene so ridiculous. The guy has been healed. (laughs) 38 years, and now he's walking. Now he's healed. He's had this once-in-a-lifetime encounter with God, and the religious leaders, they're not like, hey, I'm so excited for you. I'm so thankful for you. I want to celebrate with you. All they can focus in is on their rules and their regulations. They completely miss the point. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who is the man? Um, he doesn't even know at this point. But one thing I like is the sense in this moment that he's just sharing a bit of his own story this is what I know. I was by the pool. I was unwell. Now I'm healed. Now I'm walking. He doesn't know this man. Do you know this man? Of course you do. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus who turns up into people's lives and brings transformation. You know, and for those of you who are keen to kind of grow in your evangelism, my encouragement to you is just start with your own story. This is where I was. This is what I experienced. This this was the difficulty I was in. This is what Jesus brought. This is the sin I was caught in. This is the forgiveness I found. We are people who, who share of what God has done in us. Look then to verse 14. John says, afterward... Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Uh, This is a curious interaction, isn't it? Uh, Jesus begins by affirming that the man is well, and it's got a kind of continuous verb sense to it, and so it's like you didn't just get healed for an hour. Uh, Actually, this is ongoing. You've been healed. And yet, no sooner does he say that, he kind of just backs it up with his word. Hey, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What are we to make of that? Like, what's the point that Jesus is making here? Now, there's a lot to kind of unpack, but just a few things. Some have interpreted this verse to mean that what Jesus was saying was that this man's sin had led directly to his illness, his disability, Um, I don't buy that reading for a whole host of different reasons I think it's very dangerous when Christians try to make a direct line from their sin to their suffering. And the reason that's very dangerous to kind of tread that territory is that we know throughout the Bible that there are many faithful righteous people who suffer Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. So I don't think you should try with this verse and make a direct link between, oh, what did he do in his past that led to this? Having said that, what is clear to me in this verse is that Jesus cares not just for his physical healing, but also and alongside the healing of his soul and his spirit and his life with God. Because I'm sure you know that there are people who might have a supernatural encounter with God, they kind of get what they want from God, yet don't really have any interest in living for God. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen because there is something far worse than being blind in this age or being unable to walk in this age, and that is to walk into hell. It's no good if you get healed physically and then completely ignore Jesus because you made ultimately for a relationship with Him. And so I don't know what was going on in this guy's life, but it's clear that Jesus wants him to take seriously his relationship with God. Yes, you've been healed physically, but don't abandon God, don't live a life of lawlessness, don't... Keep running in sin. I think the same has got to ring true for us today. I think Jesus would say the same thing to you. Hey, don't just seek God for some supernatural healing. Pursue faithfulness. Stop sinning. Stop lying. Stop looking at porn. Stop cheating on that person. Stop harboring that bitterness. Stop. Start loving God. Start following God. Start pursuing God. How does the man in John respond to this little encounter with Jesus? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and that was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Again, I have questions about this little interaction because I don't really know why he ran straight away and spoke to the Jewish authorities when he knew they were already like, was he doing it because he was trying to curry favor with those in authority? Or was this just the case of a guy who was just so, you know, amazed by what Jesus had done that he just wanted to share it? I don't know. But in any event, this is a turning point in the gospel where we begin to start seeing now, and it's signaled earlier, but we begin to start seeing that the Jewish authorities are now putting Jesus at the center of the crosshairs. They're going after him and they're hunting him down. And so verse 17, which is our closing section, John says this, "'But Jesus answered them, "'My Father is working until now, and I am working.'" This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, note these words, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What was Jesus doing with these signs? What was he saying in his teaching? What was he trying to declare? He was making himself equal with God. Um... I remember uh, being on holidays some, some months back now, and uh, just a holiday at home, and I uh, had a few uh, evangelists come uh, knocking at our door with uh, the, the pamphlets and the spiel and the iPod, iPad presentation about their cult. Um, and I, you know, it's funny, you stay home, you get all of these random evangelists turning up to your house, uh, which I guess for most people is annoying. For me, it's like all my Christmases have come at once. And one of the things you'll notice after their initial spiel is, um, you know, they'll say things like, oh, you believe in God, we believe in God, and you believe in the Bible, oh, we believe in God, I've got a Bible, you've got a Bible, great, you believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and you're like, you're like that's their way in, as if we're all on the same page. But actually, if you just, if you just kind of look under the hood a little bit, one of the, and I don't care if you're talking to, like, every like almost every single cult I can think of, every single um, Uh, false or counterfeit church, uh, false counterfeit religion. If If you really want to know what's the defining distinction, it all will often come down to their theology of Jesus himself. Who is this man? That's the question you want to ask. Well, who do you say he is? And often what you'll hear is a very polite, oh, he's a great prophet. Had so much good stuff to say. And oh yeah, we, we really admire him. He's, he's created, it's another creator, but really did life really well and we could learn a lot from him. And, and I just it just baffles me. Because if you actually open up the Bible for yourself, You'll see that Jesus never allowed us to dethrone him from the king, uh, from the the throne that he was on. Jesus would never allow us to patronize him or box him into this uh, human-shaped, godless, uh, created space. He was always helping us see, teaching us that he was so much more. I mean, think about the wise men. We're coming up to Christmas. The wise men saw the stars in the sky and and they came to the child Christ. And what did they do? They gave gifts and they fell down and worshipped him. Or think about the the, the disciples when Jesus uh, walked on water. They said, truly, this is the son of God. And they worshipped him. Or take the women who who, who go to the empty tomb and they see Jesus, the physical resurrected Jesus before their eyes. We're told they fell down, took a hold of his feet and what do they do? They worshipped him. You know in the Old Testament you should only ever worship God and God alone. First commandment. And yet does Jesus dismiss these women? Does he dismiss his disciples and say, hey, get up, I'm not, don't. No, he welcomes their worship. Why? And then what about this? Listen, Jesus wasn't killed because he was just a good man. They went after him for his claim that he was God. And so either, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis so famously said, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Remember at the top of this message, I, I shared how Israel were longing for a Messiah. The prophets had declared, God had spoken, a Messiah is coming. How do we know when the Messiah truly comes? If you read Isaiah, there's a whole lot of predictions and prophecies to help us recognize God's Messiah. For example, in Isaiah 7, we're told Christ would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel. Right? This is written 600 years BC. We're told that he'd come from the line of David and walk in righteousness. But there was something else we were to look for. Look to what Isaiah says. How do we know that Christ has come? Isaiah says, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then... Will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy? Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. The miracles of Jesus are not just a spiritual flex. They are a sign for you that you would know that this Jesus truly is the Son of God and that by believing in Him, there is life. And so you have a choice today as the band comes up and we prepare to respond. You have a choice today. There's no middle ground. You are either here today as someone who rejects this Jesus, says, I don't believe it, I don't believe Him, I stand against him. And a bit like these religious authorities, want to kind of push him out. Or you are here today and you say, yes, I believe. Today, you have seen the mercy of God in Christ. You've seen the power of God in Christ. Don't sit on the fence. In faith, believe. Receive the life that came for you. Jesus lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And we, the people of God, walk with Him. Enjoy Him. Pray to Him. Love him. Worship him. To so have a moment now to respond, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we do that. Um, you know, I'd love for this church, love for us to be a worshiping church, and that would be true in the songs that we sing and also the prayers that we pray. We're a praying church. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We pray because we believe that God is real and powerful to save. And so we have people available down the front for prayer. And we're going to sing a few songs. And this is a time for us to sing and to pray. We're going to sing and pray. And, And maybe there's some situation in your life right now that feels impossible to you. Maybe you have a family member who's unwell, who's sick. Maybe you are struggling with something in your own life physically. Uh, Maybe there is a difficulty in your job that you're trying to wrestle through or a relationship that for whatever reason is just not going the way that you'd hope. Listen, if you are in Christ today, don't just hold on to that. Bring it to Jesus. And so use these next two songs to to pray and, and to come down forward. Let's lift these things, big or small, to God in prayer. And if you are here and you're not yet a believer, I also invite you to come forward. Don't just watch this story. Enter in. Give your life to Jesus today. He promises to forgive you. He promises to, to rescue you. He promises to hold you and keep you in this life and in the next. Our response is belief and worship. So if that's you today, come forward. We'd love to help you, serve you, support you, and pray for you as well. Let's respond. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.